before we jump into the sermon, a couple things I'd like to share with you um, and just to honor some people. Uh, we showed up this morning. We rent from a school, and um, that comes with unique excitements. Um, behind that curtain is a building, and I'm not talking about the edge of this building, but there's a constructed building there, and we didn't know that until we got here. So um, our normal projector uh, doesn't work currently because that. Um, so I mean, the, the production team, all volunteer, um, just pivoted and made this happen. So I just want to honor them and thank them. Uh, um, and you know what that means is there is not a countdown in the back for me to see because the screens are on stage. So yeah, so that's right. That's right. Uh, someone pointed out that like the second week we were in this building, um, the school had a like total network reset and we lost all audio and there's nothing that we could do about it. Um, but we kept preaching, so yeah, there is, there, they can't just shut me down. I don't know. <laughs> no. But in fairness to you, I did bring my phone this time, and I'll try to keep time. So, um, I mean, do you remember Beanie Babies? Yeah, mid to late 90s, uh, the, baby, the Beanie Baby craze was amazing um, and became so much more amazing this week because one of my coworkers, big staff, big church, you know, um, all one female, but she was telling me about... Um, just how in it her family was. They, they love Beanie Babies. And if you don't remember, uh, the deal was the company that made Beanie Babies said limited production of all of these things, some of them even more restricted how many we're going to make. And yet the demand was huge. And so a uh, law of supply and demand, like the, the cost, like this is worth investing in. And so you had millions of people trying to buy up all these Beanie Babies. And you're like, there's only going to be so many and everyone wants them. This is a great investment. And so just crazy things happen. She's telling me about going on vacation and her family would like be in a hotel, but they would go to this specific store that sold a bunch of Beanie Babies and they would go in separate from each other with cash so that each of them could buy Beanie Babies because they would limit it to one per party. And so they had to pretend like they don't know each other go buy these Beanie Babies, they would come out, change clothes, go back in, do it again. Like, yes, they were so invested, and not just financially. But um, she also told me about, there was a point when the Beanie Babies were offered um, through Happy Meals at McDonald's, and um, their family would load up in the drive-thru and go through and buy Happy Meals that they had no intention of eating just to get the Beanie Babies. And she said one day she remembers there was a homeless gentleman set up at the corner of McDonald's because he's just happily taking all these free Happy Meals. <laughs> like he has food for weeks. And from what I've seen online, McDonald's food lasts for weeks. So that's, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> um, but man, it, it was just, it was so exciting. Everybody was in it. And I'm just thinking like, this is so going to pay off. It's, it's going to be amazing. And you know what happened. Like it crashed. It crashed. The Beanie Baby market crashed. The values plummeted, and now you have all these, like, anybody have a bunch of them at home? I'm not going to embarrass you. Thank you. Thank you for admitting it. I love your honesty. Um, now they just sit there like these weird things, and I don't know. Um, but here's, here's the thing. <laughs> impressive beginnings don't always have impressive endings. Impressive beginnings don't always have impressive endings. And impressive endings don't always have impressive beginnings. And that's at the heart of the parable that we're going to talk about today. If you haven't caught on, we're sharing a parable that, that we wrote um, early on in the service, but um, we're looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew as we go through this series. And so today, if you want to turn to your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 13, um, we will be looking at another parable in verse 31 and 32. Matthew 13, verse 31 through 32, Jesus presents another parable. This is what it says. 
he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. A mustard seed and a mustard plant. Uh, some years ago, uh, I was getting my hair cut by a stylist, and it was summertime, and um, I usually go quite a long period of time um, just because I'm cheap like that. Cut my son's hair for the first time yesterday. That's exciting. Be nice. Um, but <laughs> I... I went to this, I was getting my hair cut, and, and I was just telling him, like, it's, haircuts are so awkward for me. I usually love awkward, but haircuts are just weird. Like, especially if you're in a place where they have the mirror, and like, do I look at me? Do I look at you? Like, I don't know what's going on here. It's weird. But we're, we're there, and so I'm just, how do I talk? And so I just, I said, you know, my hair got really long this time. Um, this seems to grow so fast. And uh, the stylist looks at me and she says, yeah, it's like the grass in summer. The, the grass grows a lot faster, so it makes sense that your hair would grow a lot faster. And I looked at her and I thought, I don't know. <laughs> like, photosynthesis. Like, I just, <laughs> but here's the thing. I honestly don't know. So, I mean, it's, it's just not my field of expertise. My hair is thinning um, and the hairline is receding so maybe just more sunlight and water would be good. I don't, I don't know. Um, it doesn't help? No? Okay. Uh, Chris is my resident expert on balding. So, um, man, uh, but here's the thing. I should have to say, some of us know more or less about agriculture, and that's okay. Um, but in the context of when Jesus spoke this parable about a mustard seed, everyone would know what he was talking about. A much more agrarian society, agriculture was at the heart of their economy. It's how they lived. And so you, did, you didn't grow up in the context of where Jesus was speaking and not understand what he's talking about, even though some of it is lost on us. And so I want to help try to uh, bring us into this to understand what he's saying. Um, the mustard seed is small. In fact, I have one here. Actually, I have like thousands um, because they're so small. Um, these tiny little seeds, like they can pour through the little filter ones. Like you get the idea. They are tiny. Like if I take just one of them, actually there's 20. Um, like, can you see that? If you can, like, tell me who your eye doctor is, because that's amazing. Um, they're so small. Actually, that's two. Yeah, there's one. They're so small. And it's just amazing to think that that tiny little thing gets planted into the ground, goes in the soil, and then grows up and becomes this impressive tree. And so Jesus is saying, the smallest seed, you know? And to which some critics will now say, you can't trust any of this. This guy, like, surely this guy would have known. If you were in the audience of Jesus and you heard that, part of your brain would say, but it's not actually the smallest seed. There are other seeds that are genuinely smaller than mustard seed. And so do we just say, this guy has no clue what he's talking about or he's a liar? No. Uh, the thing is, um, a reference to the mustard seed was like a colloquialism. It's, it's recognized in their culture as proverbially being what you would refer to as the smallest of something. And so you can look into classifications of seeds and say that it's in the class of the smallest. There are all, there are all these things. But just however we look at it, to read this literally, not literally, is to say, Jesus is just saying, you know how small that is? The point is, it's insignificant. It's insignificant. It's insignificantly small, and yet it grows to something. This mustard seed, 
from small, unassuming origins becomes quite impressive. Like to think, like for us, me, like I don't understand agriculture. And yet to think that tiny little thing becomes something that in a healthy environment, in good conditions, that mustard seed can become eight to 12 feet tall and become broad and like shrubbery, like it provides a lot of shade. Like it's crazy to think that small thing, just drawing nutrients from the soil, absorbing sunlight and all the moisture, and that grows into this massive, impressive thing. That's the point of it. In fact, he says it becomes a tree to which, again, all the the plant experts say, it's not a tree, it's a plant. And again, that's the point. It's hyperbole. He's speaking in terms to make a point. He's not trying to give us a scientific textbook. He's making a point that on their ears, they would have totally understood. The point is, it's tiny, and yet it becomes profound. And so why would he say that? These unassuming origins, it becomes quite impressive. Planted in the field, not the garden, and yet it becomes larger than all the garden plants. Why would Jesus tell us that? And we also remember what we started last week. As we look through these parables, what is a parable? A parable is a short story that's trying to illustrate a spiritual truth. As Jesus is telling us about a mustard seed becoming impressive from something that is not impressive, what is the spiritual truth he is trying to illustrate in this story? What is Jesus trying to teach us in this parable? And it's quite explicit, actually. We read it again. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. So what is he teaching us about? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus is trying to make a point. He's trying to illustrate a point through storytelling to tell us something about the kingdom of heaven. And sidebar here, is it the kingdom of heaven or is it the kingdom of God? And what's the difference? The answer is there is no difference. It's the same thing. So if you're reading through the gospels, the synoptic gospels, namely Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew refers constantly to Jesus preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke will refer to Jesus, same sermons, same teachings, and yet he calls it the kingdom of God. Why the difference? There is no difference, actually. It's just a paraphrastic use of heaven instead of God. Why would Matthew do that? Because Matthew is a good, pious Jew, um, growing up in that context and writing largely to an audience of Jews. Um, you know, you may actually encounter Jews today who will not use the full name of God. Like often in writing, they, even in English, if they're writing the name of God, it'll be G-D, that they don't want to irreverently or wrongfully use the divine name. And that's why um, we say uppercase, all caps, Lord, in place of what we think was likely Yahweh, but it's Y-H-W-H, that we don't know exactly how it's supposed to be pronounced. Because they wanted to handle the name of God so reverently. And so in the same way, Matthew is going to kind of avoid referencing the name of God and instead use heaven. Paraphrastically, he uses heaven. So it's the same thing. But why choose heaven in place of God, Matthew? And for that answer, we must ask another question. What is the kingdom of heaven? When you think of heaven, we think of the uncontested rule and reign of God. You think of just kingdom, though. Think in the word kingdom, what is the word that you see within the word? King. You don't have a kingdom without a king. And so the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we need to look for who's the king and what does a king do? A king is going to have power. He's going to have sovereignty. He's going to have lordship. He's going to govern over a domain. And so the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. It is where God's rule and reign prevails. 
And to that end, it is both present and to come. It is the real rule and reign of God. This parable is telling us, remember, mustard seed, tiny, seemingly insignificant thing. That's what the rule and reign of God is like in this world. It seems like it's nothing, like it's so small. And yet it's going to grow and become this enormous, impressive thing that you cannot overlook. Like, that's pretty crazy. Jesus is saying, this, this is what it's going to be like, guys. And this should be shocking. But the kingdom of heaven being a reference to the reign of God, his rule and reign as king, where he is sovereign, and there are those who are subservient to him, comes with attention that we think even now. And as Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would we need to pray that except for the fact that it is not yet done on earth as it is in heaven? That there is this tension that the rule and reign of God is true for some and not for others. That some are not submitting to the rule and reign of God. Some are living in active rebellion against God. In fact, at one time, that was all of us. And so the kingdom of God comes with this tension that it is already and yet not yet. That for some, it is here, it is present, and yet for others, it is yet to come. The parable says it is certain to come. Just know it is coming. The rest of creation may still be an act of rebellion against God. And again, that was us at one time. But with this bad news that there is this cosmic treason, there is this rebellion against God, there is sin in biblical terms, that we have rebelled against God, we defy his commands, we fall short of his glory, that we are broken, made in the image of God, and yet we have marred that. As you think of our guilt, of our sin, the way that we do not live in the way that God would have us to live, and we try to act like we are our own gods, like we are king, and he is not king. That is bad news, because there is a real king, and there are consequences for our rebellion. And yet the good news, which is what gospel means, the good news is that king loves us, and that king wears a crown of thorns. And so it becomes so odd to think, again, parable of a mustard seed, that this mustard seed, so small, seemingly insignificant, and yet it's going to grow. And so you start from these unassuming, unexpected origins, and you think of the gospel, that in our rebellion, God, the king, comes to us. God becomes a man. That God becoming a man is so unexpected. Born into this impoverished family, a family that is on the road, they're not even home for this, and we just celebrated this at Christmas to think historically that God entered into human flesh. He took on human flesh. Jesus, the God-man, was born a completely dependent baby to this virgin mother. And they're traveling for a registration because of an oppressive empire ruling over this region. And they get to this city where he should have relatives and everything, and there's no room for them in the end. And he's born and placed into a manger, a feeding trough for animals. What humble origins, so seemingly small, so unexpected, that God of glory would come into this in this way, that the king would arrive in this way. And then he would live a sinless life, and then he would come up to the point of death, death on a cross, again, and humility, so unexpectedly that the King of kings and Lord of lords would seemingly be defeated on a cross. When he is murdered, he is crucified. But he did that joyfully, willingly. He died the death that you and I deserve. Nailed to the cross, he became our sin so that in him, the one who has sent us, we might become the righteousness of God, that he took our place. He gave us his righteousness and he took our sin and death on himself in dying 
He put it to death. That it seemed like he was defeated, and yet the real defeat, as he is raised again back to life, is that he has defeated sin and death. And he has offered eternal life, everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, freedom for us. That now we see he has a risen, conquering king. He's alive forevermore. That when he was exalted on a cross, he was truly exalted to say, draw men to me. He is drawing men to himself. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And yes, it was a crown of thorns. It's not what we would expect. And yet it is more glorious than we could have ever imagined. That this is the way he would come. So unassuming, like a mustard seed. And yet it would grow to become this prominent, beautiful thing. And you know the end? The end is, in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. That he is sovereign master, he is boss, he is over me. He is not just my savior, he's not just my rescuer, he's not just my friend, he is God himself who has come to rule and to reign. He is Lord. And we go from this tiny unassuming seed to this glorious plant, this tree that gives shade and a place to nest, to be fruitful, to grow, a glorious end. And so today, in the tension of that already, not yet, where do we see his kingdom here? Where is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Where do you see it? Where's the reality of that on this planet? It's in us. Church, it is us, his people who live under his rule and reign, who gladly submit to his lordship, that he is king and we are not. And so we are the way that the world currently sees the reality of the kingdom of heaven. That's why with our deacons, we meet monthly and, and there's a benevolence budget and we, and we say, okay, how are we gonna use this? If we don't know of a particular need at the moment, we say, all right, what good do we need to do in this community to show the community that the kingdom of God has truly come? Because that is our role. We're to be the image of God, his image bearers. We should show the world the kingdom of God has truly come because the king came. He has come for us. And so if God's rule and reign in us currently is how the world sees it, what does this parable really illustrate for us? A major point of the parable. Let's be clear. The major point of the parable is the unexpected growth of the kingdom despite its humble beginnings. And that's beautiful. It's amazing. Like that is the major point of this parable. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week because there's a sister parable that will follow. Don't cheat and look ahead. Maybe actually do. It's great. But this sister parable that follows is largely going to reinforce the same point. But for this week, as we step into these two parables, what I want us to do is to first be shocked. To first be shocked and experience this parable like the original audience would have. To try to step into not just the story of the parable, but the story of this is real history. How would these people have heard this parable from Jesus? And how should we rightly hear this parable from Jesus? That it should shock us. What would have been so shocking about this? So two components to this. The things that should shock us about this parable is the coming of God's kingdom and the coming into God's kingdom. When you hear the parable of the mustard seed, to be with the audience and hear Jesus say this in such a way that it would shock us to think that's how the kingdom of God comes and that's how one comes into the kingdom of God. It would be shocking to their ears and I think that we will see it as shocking as well if we are honest. So, Let's start with that. The shock of the coming of God's kingdom. The coming of God's kingdom. And so again, we ask, why a mustard seed? As we have established, because it's unassuming. It's unexpected. It's not what we would expect. 
the size and the grandiose expectations of the arrival of the kingdom of God because of all the prophecies that everyone in this context is waiting. These are, these are devout Jewish people. They, they're from the nation of Israel. This is a people group not a location. These are a people that are supposed to be the people of God. They received the promises going back to their forefather Abraham that of his seed, it will bless the nations. And so they are those people and they trace forward 400 years. They get to Moses and Moses gets the law. Now we're people of Moses. We have the law of God that's supposed to define for us what it looks like to be the people of God, how we interact with each other, how we represent God to the world, how we interact with God in this temple system with all these sacrifices and all this stuff. We're the people of God. And yet, for hundreds of years at this point, they've been living under the oppression of one empire after another. That you think back to the heights of the kingdom when David, a man after God's own heart, was ruling and reigning and peace. He's conquering all the enemies and his son gets to live and reign in peace. The heights of the empire, the heights of the dynasty of David, and David has given this promise that his descendants will be on the throne. His son will be on the throne forever. And so they're waiting. And the prophets are saying, listen, the king is coming back. They get sent off into exile and they come back and the temple is so pitily. They're trying to restart things. And just all the time, over and over, they're falling prey to one power after another. And you gotta be thinking, oh, I'm part of the people of God. Like the God who just completely humbled Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, who was uncontested on earth, and yet he was brought to a point of humility to where he cried out from pagan lips, ah, there's no one who can stay your hand. That he would confess that God can do whatever he wants, and yet here are God's people living under oppression. And so with the prophets, saying the Messiah is coming. One is coming. A king is coming. And so they're waiting for this king with great anticipation, great expectation, waiting for a king to come and turn all of this around. And so they're thinking, man, the king is going to come. He's going to oust these Romans. Like, I'm so tired of carrying these Romans' luggage all the time because that's part of the laws. I have to carry it for a mile for them. And I'm tired of them coming in and demanding taxes. I can't pay for anything. And yet you keep taking more money from me. All of the oppression that they're experiencing. They're waiting for a king to come and turn all that around. And they expect the king to come in with great majesty and power. You get like the zealots. This is an actual group of essentially assassins who are really, really committed to the word of God. And yet their idea is we've got to be ready for this revolution. So they're dagger men. They would carry these small swords, ready to try to just assassinate people, trying to usher in the kingdom because when the king comes, we've got to be ready because we're going to take this all back. They're waiting for something greatly impressive. And yet Jesus shows up again, born of a virgin, poor parents, placed in a feeding trough on the night of his birth. This is the king. And now they're listening to Jesus, who's making these great claims, showing himself to be the promised one, to be the Messiah. And yet this is this homeless rabbi. Like, look at him. What's impressive? Isaiah foretold there would not be anything visibly impressive about him. This is not what we expected. They expected the kingdom of God to come in just grandiose fashion. And I think we are more similar than we want to admit. That we, can, we can look anachronistically back. We can think of them and think like, ah, oh, they, they so missed it. But in our own lives, what do we expect the kingdom of God bearing on us to look like? 
So often we think it's supposed to be this really, really big, magical, just like shake the earth and like it's going to be amazing. And sometimes it is, and we pray desperately and long for that. But sometimes it's like a mustard seed. It's this slow, unexpecting, unassuming growth. And yet it will end up glorious. It will be. We often wrongly expect the kingdom of God to come and be about the things outside of us, these external problems, these circumstances, these oppressions, all these things that could rightly be called wrong. And yet, it's so easy for us to forget. Jesus said, when he's asked, well, where's your army, king? Are they going to fight for you? He's about to die. And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. That he's after a kingdom that is so much more than what is temporal, is so much more than just our current circumstances. He's after our souls. He's after capturing us and getting us in his kingdom forever to enjoy him. The enemy is real. Satan is real. The demons, it's real. The supernatural, it is real. As real as God is, so is his opposing adversary, Satan, who walks around roaring like a, like a lion. He wants to devour us. And yet, he is not omniscient. He does not know all things. He is not omnipresent. Do not give him the credit of him being able to be more places than he actually can be. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. The enemy is real, but the enemy is also in us. The sin in us is probably the bigger threat. You read the scriptures, you see what the Spirit does in bringing about the kingdom of God more and more in our lives. What does it look like? Sometimes it looks like incredible things that shake the earth. But you know what it definitely looks like? It looks like things like the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, kindness, patience, self-control. It looks like us learning to love God and love others. It looks like a mustard seed. It may not be visually impressive at first, but just wait and see what it becomes. Just wait and see what it becomes. Notice the mustard seed is planted in a field. Um, this actually changes a bit in uh, the parallel passages and the other synoptics. But here Matthew makes it a point. It's planted in a field. It's not planted in the garden, yet it grows to be larger than the plants of the garden. Do you know why you would plant a mustard seed in a field and not in the garden? Because they used mustard seeds. They used the mustard plants. It created spices and medicines at the time. Why would you plant it in a field and not in the garden where you can cultivate it with the rest of the garden plants? Because it was actually a nuisance. Like it had some helpful traits, but it was also dangerous. This mustard plant is actually dangerous in that it can go overtake other plants. And so you put that bad boy out there by itself so it doesn't affect all the other plants that you want. And the kingdom of God is actually a lot like that. In your life, in my life, it is not going to just sit idle. God's rule and reign is going to mess with things in us. It's going to change us. It's going to take over. And so I have to ask a couple questions here. Are you willing to let go of your kingdom? Because his kingdom will prevail. It's going to grow and overtake the rest. Are you willing to let go of your kingdom? Uh, we have a pool. It's way too cold to be in that pool right now. But uh, my family, we, just, we love it. We love playing in the pool. Um, my two kids, uh, they are probably far too young of an age. I just had to have some fun with them, you know? And so one day I'm like, we're going to learn how to flip. All right, guys? I don't know if any, any dad ideas like, yeah, 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 that sounds awesome. And then the actual practice of it is like, oh, no, this is terrifying. Um, but like, I'm taking my kids and I would hold them and I would throw them and I'd 
just tell him like you need to like curl up in a ball, like you're gonna sling your arms forward and just curl up like a cannonball and just tuck. And I promise you, you're gonna spin over. It's gonna be awesome. You're laying in water. You're gonna be totally okay. If you wanna hold your nose, you can do that so water doesn't go up. Whatever. If you're backwards, like same thing. But like you gotta just trust me. You gotta let go. Like you have to let go. If you don't let go, this is going to go poorly. And you know what happens every time for the first couple weeks? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. For it. You're gonna let go, and I'm like holding my hands or whatever, and like I go to throw them, and what do they do? Just eyes bulging, fingers clenched, like grab on. They don't want to let go, and what happens? Just flat, flat, bam! It's bad every time. But when they finally learn to trust me and just let go, oh, freedom! Like flying through the air, spinning back gracefully in the water. There was that tension of at one point just couldn't let go, and then to just trust. And when you let go, there's freedom there. And so it is with the kingdom of God. That we can try to white-knuckle this. It's like, no, it's my kingdom. You are not the king. I am not the king. Jesus is king. And when we learn to let go, oh, the beauty, the greatness of God that is shown in our lives. So are you willing to let go of your kingdom? And then, are you willing to let go of the kingdom of the world? Will you let go of your kingdom, but then will you let go of the kingdom of the world? Uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book, The Great Divorce, and in it he tells a story that I'll greatly paraphrase here, but um, the idea is this ghost comes up to the gates of heaven, and this ghost coming up to heaven, and, and as he's making his way there, there's a lizard on his shoulder, and this lizard is lust, and so the lizard's there, and, and the lizard's like whispering into his ear and all this stuff, and, and he's just like, nah, get out of here. Like, he can't stand it. Like, I, that vile little creature is here. And, like, it's going to be so embarrassing to get there and, and have you here. Like, ah, I just, oh, I can't stand you. And they get to the gates there, and this angel shows up. And the angel is, like, radiant and full of heat and all this stuff. And the angel sees this lizard and is like, yeah, you, you're not coming in here with that. Like, oh, no, I just, I, uh. like, I can take care of it. Oh, yeah? Like, yeah, I'll kill it. And the guy immediately, whoa, 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 whoa kill it. Is that really necessary? Yes. You gotta kill it. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we really have to kill it. Like, look, it's, it's falling asleep. No. It has to die. And he just shrinks back. And so in the same way, you have to ask, like, have you made peace with your sin? Have you made peace with the kingdom of the world? No. Kill it. Or it will kill you. We must kill it. Put it to death by the power of God. Fight. And you may not see the end, but the end, like the parable of the mustard seed, God's kingdom is growing. And he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion on that day. In the meantime, fight. Let go of the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is going to grow. Do you want it to? Do you want the kingdom of God to grow in this world? Do you want the kingdom of heaven to be ushered in beautifully? in your own life and the life of those around you? Do you want the kingdom to grow? Because it's about more than our temporal desires. It's about more than our circumstances right now. It's about eternity. And so we see the shock of the coming of God's kingdom. That is a kingdom that we do not actually naturally just like, oh yes, open arms, here we go. Because it's not what we expected and it's so hard to see that he's actually come to fight something within us largely. And we have to let go and allow him to be king. But then there's the shock of the coming into God's kingdom. 
This is the other way that it would be a shock. That Jesus, in using hyperbolic language, when he says it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. All the good Jewish boys and girls, knowing the scriptures, knowing the prophecies, knowing what the Old Testament, as we called it, would say, would know that is a reference to a lot of passages in the Old Testament that would talk about some kind of a tree growing and birds of the sky coming and nesting in its branches. They would, what, what did he just do? He just tied this to a lot of other stuff. And yes, we expected that. But what does that mean? Listen to how it said with Ezekiel 17, 22 to 23. This is what the Lord God says. I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and I will plant it on a high towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain so that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. This is a beautiful messianic prophecy. It's a foretelling, a promise of the Messiah, the king who would come. And the way that this would come about, like a mustard seed, this tiny little thing, I'll, just, I'll take this tiny little tinder sprig from the topmost of its, of its shoots, this tiny little thing, I'm going to plant it on top of a mountain, the highest mountain of Israel. And do you know what this tree that grew would become? It was the cross. Another unassuming, small, insignificant thing, that this tree would become the way that all the birds of the sky come and nest and find shade in its branches that you could come here to rest, rest for your weary soul, that on Mount Moriah, Jesus would be exalted, lifted up on a cross, that a cross, a tree would be planted there, and it would provide shade and a place for resting. The birds of the sky would come in, and that means it's not just for Israel, it's for all the nations. And so coming into the kingdom, when it doesn't look like I thought it would, but then seeing that others are invited into the kingdom, and so for the Jewish people to be like, we are the people of God, it could be difficult for them to think like, yes, we're supposed to be open and invite the nations in. And now, church, we are commissioned to take the gospel to all nations. Maybe it's not as hard for us to hear this and think, oh, other nations get to be involved because we all were another nation. But who is it in your life that it's hard for you to imagine them being welcomed into the kingdom of God as you have been? And he's saying, there's room here. They're welcome as well. Are you okay with others coming in? Birds are going to nest where they believe it's safe, where they can rest. Let's be a church that shows it's safe. You can rest here. You can nest here. This can be home. And it's only possible when we see that this is a sovereign king who rules and reigns over us. So the kingdom of heaven is going to advance. And it comes down to this. The kingdom of heaven will advance. Will you be part of it? It's like that mustard seed. It may be unassuming. It may be unexpected. It may be insignificant at start, but it's going to become something so beautiful, and history has already shown it to be so. Christopher Wright, uh, he says this. He says, It is not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. We are the people of God, his church, and we have been given a mission. But the church was made for the mission, not the mission for the church. The kingdom of heaven will advance. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Let's be part of it. Embrace the king.
Because impressive beginnings don't always have impressive endings. And impressive endings don't always have impressive beginnings. So it is with the kingdom of heaven. Heaven's king has come and he is coming again. Will you embrace him? Will you see him as glorious? Will you see that he came because he loves you? Because he wanted to be with you. He came to save you. He loves us and he's coming again. He is going to reign over us and he already does in his church. Let's be part of this. Can you believe this good news? That God is that good. And will you share it? As the band comes, will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love. That you, you would die for us. Jesus is amazing. So would you work in us today? Grow us as we are a part of this kingdom as it grows and help us to, to willingly lay down our own personal kingdoms to embrace you as the true and rightful king to see your lordship over everything to delight in you in every aspect of creation as we see your goodness and it all speaks to you. But even in the brokenness, we see you, a glorious Savior who is recreating everything. So we thank you to bless this church. Teach us the way of the mustard seed way of the kingdom of heaven. We trust you, we praise you, and we say this in the name of Jesus. Amen.